reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times, articles, or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. Good morning. It is good to be here this morning, and we want to thank you for having us. Um, as a church, we are very happy to help during this season of time that you guys are going through. Uh, we know that it is a difficult season as you wait to see what the Lord has in store for you, who he will bring here to lead you all. And I want to encourage you that the seasons of waiting, the seasons of the unknown, the seasons where you don't even really know what direction to go or where to head, those are the seasons that God brings into our lives for us to trust him more. As part of our church Bible reading plan this week, I was reading through, uh, we were reading through and memorizing Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's two artists that I listen to that have good, good song versions of this psalm that I've been listening to this week. And so that, that line has just been in my mind all week. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as I was meditating on that this morning, I was thinking of what is a shepherd? What, what do sheep do? As they're, as they're wandering around the wilderness, I thought to myself, I'm like, what does a sheep worry about? And I don't know about you guys, but any picture that I've ever seen of, of sheep, they don't really look all that concerned about anything. They don't really look that worried about anything. They're just kind of there, grazing. And I thought, man, that's a good shepherd, right? A good shepherd leads the sheep so well that they really have nothing to worry about. And I think that's exactly what God wants us to realize, that we're not in control. We don't really know what's going on. He just wants us to trust him. He wants us to be so trustworthy and dependent on him that we're not concerned about anything. And so I would encourage you all with that this morning, that God is in control. Just simply trust him. He knows the plans that he has for you. And I know it's easier said than done, but... Trust that God is going to bring the person here that he wants for you. And as we begin the sermon this morning, I, I'm excited for this series that you guys have been going through, uh, Distinctive Discipleship, and what you guys have been learning so far. It's, it's been a great series. I've, I've kind of listened back to some of the sermons, and it's a great series. Uh, I would actually love to do this at our church as well. It's, it's a wonderful reminder to us. You know, I, I've been listening to uh, another book from Robbie Gallaty, and he talks about this idea of discipleship. He says, when we get to heaven, he said, God isn't going to say, how were your sermons? Did you worship? Because he didn't tell us to do that. When he went back to heaven, he didn't say, make sure you preach, make sure you teach, make sure you do distinctive discipleship. He said, make disciples of all nations. And so when we get to heaven, he's going to judge us based on how well we did that. How well we made disciples. And so this series is so important for us to recognize and realize that we need to be following Christ, and our goal and our mission is to bring others to follow Christ as well, so that you may teach them, so you may baptize them in the name of Christ, and then teach them to obey all the commands that I have given to you. That is our mandate. That is our command. And so three weeks ago, when Bill started the series, he talked about, are you a stagnant Christian? He challenged you to think about where you are in your spiritual lives. Are you where you want to be, or are you stagnant, kind of like a pond that, that never has any fresh intake of water and just sits there and starts to stink after a while? 
We need to be much more like rivers that constantly have water flowing through them. They're fresh, they're, they're vibrant, they're living, they're active. Two weeks ago, Randy Fair talked about living as those made alive in Christ. And he shared the vivid image of a septic tank, and that will forever be stuck in my brain now. And I know he also talked about, it must be that window, and he told you guys that if you get bored to look at that window, and so just, I just want you to know that I see you. And so if I see you look at that window, I, I, know, I know what you're doing. But he talked about that sludge that, that gets to the bottom of, of the septic tank, and it just sits there, and it builds up, and you need to get it cleaned up, and are our lives like that? How are we allowing sin to fester and to, to stink in our lives and to, to remain there? But we should be filled with God's Word through His Spirit, flowing through us, getting rid of that filth in our souls, living for purity and holiness. And then last week, John Dyke talked about finding our necessary motive, delighting in God. Do we delight in the things of this world or the things that are around us, or are we delighting in Christ? We need to understand the true delight is found in Christ in living for His glory, for His honor. This morning I'll be picking up the next sermon in the series on distinctive discipleship, and so my title is, my sermon is entitled Disobedience, Confronting Your Sinful Leanings. Now we all struggle with sin. This is nothing new to us as Christians, but the longer that we allow specific sins into our lives, they begin to get a foothold, and they begin to control us rather than us controlling our bodies. And through habit, these become normal to us. Sins become normal, and the longer they go on, we stop thinking about them. We stop realizing how damaging they are to our lives, and we don't even notice them anymore. And we become so accustomed to them that we aren't grieved by sin anymore. Greg Gilbert, in his book, What is the Gospel?, shares the story of a parking ticket he received. He says, I just paid a parking ticket the other day. It was easy. I read the charge against me. I flipped the ticket over, checked the box that said, I plead guilty to the charge, filled out a check for $35 to the Metropolitan Traffic Citation Department, sealed the envelope, and dropped it off in the mail. I'm a convicted criminal. For some reason, though, even though I checked the guilty box, I don't feel terribly guilty. I'm not going to lose any sleep over my walk on the wrong side of the law. I don't feel the need to ask anyone's forgiveness. And now that I think about it, I'm even a little frustrated that the ticket was $10 more than it was the last time I paid one. Why don't I feel bad about breaking the law, he says. I suppose it's because when you get right down to it, breaking a parking regulation just doesn't strike me as being all that important or all that heinous. Yes, I'll be sure to drop an extra nickel in the meter next time, but my conscience isn't exactly torn up over the whole thing. One thing I've noticed over the years, Gilbert continues, is that most people tend to think of sin, especially their own sin, as not much more than a parking infraction. Yes, of course, we think. Technically, sin is a violation of the law handed down by God on high and all that, but surely he must know there are bigger criminals out there than me. Besides, nobody was hurt, and I'm willing to pay the fine, and come on, there's no need for a whole lot of soul-searching over something like this, is there? Well, I guess not, 
if you think of sin in that cold way. But, according to the Bible, sin is a lot more than just a violation of some impersonal, arbitrary, heavenly traffic violation. It's the breaking of a relationship. And even more, it is a rejection of God Himself. A repudiation of God's rule, God's care, God's authority, and God's right to command those to whom He gave life. In short, it is the rebellion of the creature against His Creator. What we need to understand is that sin separates us from God. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God created everything good, and then man sinned. And then even though He was gracious in atoning for their sin and covering their shame and their nakedness and their guilt, He had to remove them from the garden. He had to remove them from His presence because God is holy. God cannot be in the presence of sin. We must understand that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 As New Testament Christians though, we understand that this is exactly why Christ had to come. Because we're, our sin condemns us and our, our sin means that we have to, someone has to die. Blood has to be shed for the sin that we've committed. But we know that's why Christ has to come which is why we need to know the other half of that verse. But the free gift of God in His eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from death to eternal life. Praise God. And as we walk in this wonderful truth, though, we must be putting to death the deeds of the body. We must be putting to death sin. We must strive to walk in obedience to God and His Word. Striving for holiness. Striving for righteousness. And in Deuteronomy, God tells His people why He gives them His law. He says, first of all, you benefit from my law. You benefit from walking in obedience to my word. But then the nations around you will see my wisdom and what a wise God they have and the rules that he has placed over them. And so as we confront sin and obey God's word, he will give us victory. And as Brother Abe has already read this morning, our text is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Now Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians... Uh, it was a church in the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth was in a strategic location for trade. And because of this, it was filled with sexual immorality, religious diversity, and a lot of corruption. And so the church that was planted there struggled amidst all of these things going on. They struggled to obey God in the midst of a city that was rampant with sin. And here in chapter 10, though, Paul warns them. He warns them using the example of the Israelites in the Old Testament. He warns them of God's discipline on sin. The Israelites had been chosen by God to be His people. They had received His protection, His blessing, His own presence. But they turned from God and began to find their assurance in their heritage. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that obedience leads to assurance. Obedience leads to assurance. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, suffering the punishment under Pharaoh. Then God sends Moses to deliver them by performing great and mighty signs. 
And then they cross the Red Sea. And then at Mount Sinai, God gives them his law. And God's presence goes with them as they journey towards the promised land. The Israelites experienced God's favor. But that did not mean that God was happy with them. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5. For I, do not want, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." And as the NASB puts it so much more bluntly, that their dead bodies were left in the wilderness. Israel had been saved by God from slavery. They had his presence going with them. Christ himself was walking among them, providing for them spiritually and physically. And yet, God was not happy with them. Because of their disobedience, God destroyed that generation in the wilderness and did not allow them to go into the promised land. Why? We're going to dig into some of their more specific sins in the next section, but here we note that they had become overconfident. They began to rely in who they were, their own ability. They were realizing their dependence was on themselves and what they had achieved and who they were based on what God called them, rather than trusting in God. And so they coasted. They set it on cruise control, and they said, we're good. We don't need God anymore, rather than pursuing Him wholeheartedly. Now, right before this section, Paul notes for us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27, Paul, right before he says this, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. As we think about Paul, at one point in his life, he was living just like these Israelites. He had found assurance in his heritage, in who he was as a Jew. He lived proudly and arrogantly and with a sense of entitlement. But now that Paul was a Christian, he had been transformed by the gospel. He no longer lived for himself. He was now willing to literally force his body into obedience to follow Christ. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. Again, as the Israelites, they had received all these blessings, all this privilege, and it should have led to them living their lives passionately and boldly for God, but instead, they began to turn to other things. Now, most of us are familiar with the royal family. And Phoebe Tatham, writing for Hello! magazine, shared a bit about Prince George the son of Prince William and Duchess Kate. He was born in 2013. The Duchess of Cambridge gave birth to her eldest son on the 22nd of July, 2013 at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington, London. 
In a rare occurrence, his birth was only the second time that three generations in direct line of succession to the throne have all been alive at the same time. The eldest son of Duke and Duchess of Cambridge is third in line to the throne after his father, Prince William, and grandfather, Prince Charles. Now, George was a normal baby. And what I mean by that is is not that we know that every child is created uniquely in the image of God and, and is therefore special, but what I mean is that George was just a normal baby. He had eyes, he had ears, he had toes, he, he had all the normal body parts that most babies have. And yet each one of us knows how different Prince George is from the rest of us because of the family that he was born into. George is not just George, he is Prince George. He is a part of a royal family. Now the stereotype of royalty is that they're entitled, they're they're selfish, they're unable to relate to others because they've had everything handed to them on a silver platter. They're above the law, normal rules don't apply to them and they can get away with pretty much anything. And when Prince George is older and he bears the responsibility of leading an entire country, he's going to have to decide if he is going to lead the country from that place of entitlement, that place of selfishness, of feeling like I'm somebody and I deserve this, or if he's going to lead from a place of humility that says, I could never have chosen where I was born to what family I was born. I didn't choose this. It is the sovereignty of God that I am here to lead these people. He's going to have to make that decision. And this is exactly what the Israelites missed. They had received all of God's blessings. And it was all because of His grace, because He had chosen them. It wasn't because they were a great nation. They were nothing. It was Abraham. So rather than this privilege that God had given to them, rather than it leading to their humility and their humble servanthood to God, it led to their sense of entitlement. And as God blessed them, this led to their superiority, their feeling of superiority over other nations. We're better than everyone else. But what we need to learn this morning is that God's blessing does not equal God's favor. God's blessing does not equal God's favor. They thought that since they were God's people, they were okay. They thought that since they had experienced His presence, His blessing, His calling, His protection, that they were doing well. Wrong. God demands obedience from His people. He wants them to trust and depend on Him. The Israelites were disciplined because they refused to trust God. They refused to depend on Him and they began depending on themselves. They had deceived themselves. And as you think about your life, I, I know I was just talking with, I was talking with some, some of our young adults at our church uh, a few weeks back, and we were just talking about, man, there's people who are struggling, there's people who it seems like, man, they're godly people, and they go through all these troubles. It's just one after the other. All these things pile up, all these things going on in their lives, and we were just sharing that, man, I feel like we've not really had to experience a lot of hardship in my life. But just because we're experiencing God's blessing, just because this season of life may be good for you, it does not necessarily mean that God is happy with you. It does not mean that he's happy with me. We can't make that assumption. 
We can't assume that we are experiencing God's favor and therefore that means that we're experiencing His blessing and that means His favor is on us. We can't rely on our heritage. Maybe we, we all know there's people who feel like Mennonites are, Mennonites are up here and everybody else is down here. We know people that think like that. We can't rely on our heritage and think that because of who we are, we all of a sudden get a free pass. We can't rely on a prayer we may, maybe said a few years ago. We can't rely and depend on those things. We have to evaluate today. Is God pleased with us? And that is dependent on our obedience. Our obedience leads to our assurance. God has saved us to something. We often talk about what God has saved us from. He saved us from hell, and he has saved us from that. But he's also saved us to do something, to walk in his word, to walk in faithfulness, to show the world his wisdom and his power as we obey his word. And the only way that we can know and be sure that we are God's children is if we walk according to his word. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. A person that understands what Christ has done for them, has had their heart transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, will surrender themselves to God will surrender themselves in submission to his word. And when we obey God's word, we can have the assurance that we truly are his children. The Israelites had become entitled. And as we will see, this led to their sin, which led to God's discipline. And we need to learn that sin leads to discipline, but obedience leads to blessing. Obedience leads to blessing. Now, as we read the Old Testament, We're constantly confronted with two ways of living. We know that when God called his people, he set before them blessings and curses. Now this is known as the retribution principle. The retribution principle is if you obey, you will be blessed, and if you disobey, you will be cursed. In other words, you get what you deserve. We live in a reaping and a sowing world, and that's what God has placed us in. Now, we have to be careful here because we just said God's God's blessing doesn't necessarily mean God's favor, and we would say the other way too, just because you're suffering doesn't necessarily mean God is upset with you either. We learned this in the book of Job. Job is a case in point, and that's one of the reasons we need the book of Job. The book of Job tells us, what do his friends think? His friends think, you're suffering because you've sinned, and that book is there to show us that godly people do suffer. And it doesn't mean that God is upset with him. God allows testing into Job's life to prove that he truly is his son. And Satan thinks he's going to walk away. Satan thinks he's going to curse you and die. As soon as you take away the blessing, he'll curse you to your face and he'll walk away. God knows otherwise. And so Job is a godly man who suffers. We also have scripture that tells us there are people who thrive and yet are not in favor with God. Psalm 73 is a lament from Asaph. And he's lamenting, he's grieving over sinful, wicked people around him who seem to have no issues. They go on with life, they don't have any worries, they're concerned, they're fat, you know, they're eating, they're getting all the delicacies. And here us Christians are suffering and struggling. What is wrong with this picture? And so there's one reminder for us that godly people suffer, but also wicked people can thrive. And you and I both could share stories of people that we know who, who seem to disobey every area of God's commands that they possibly can, and yet for some reason God is allowing them to be blessed. And we can't explain it, we don't understand why. 
But ultimately we know that the best blessing that we can experience is eternal life in God's presence, free from sin. But the worst punishment that we could face is abandonment from God. It's not being in God's presence. So we have to know that. that. We have to understand what blessings and curses mean. Sometimes we get lost and blessing means material blessing or physical blessing or all those things and we, we're wrongly understanding that. True blessing is God's presence, is God's leading, it's God's guiding. It's one day being in his presence forever, free from sin. Now with that in mind, we turn to Israel and her sin. Her sin brought about God's judgment. We pick up in verse 6. Now these things took place as an example to us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is a reference back to Mount Sinai as Israel is based around the mountain. They're waiting for Moses to come down with the law. And Moses has been gone for 40 days and so they start to get impatient. And they build a calf and they begin to worship this calf and say, here is the God that has brought the gods that have brought you out of Egypt. So they commit idolatry and they begin a whole lot of things that we can't talk about with kids around. And their sin is, is so bad that 23,000 people fall that day. There's the leaders that rise up and kill some of the people who are instigating, and then there's a plague that goes out as well. And so God's judgment comes on them because of their sin. And Paul goes on in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now this was, what Paul is referencing here is on the journey to the, the promised land, the Israelites were, were grumbling, they were complaining, and, and they saw everything that God brought into their life as an inconvenience, as, as God's lack of love for them. That God just wants us to suffer and struggle, and He doesn't know what's best for us. And so they were distrusting God. And so He disciplines them. He brings snakes to destroy them, and as well as a destroyer. And, and God is punishing them. At the end of this whole thing, there's there's over 20,000 people that die. The Israelites were guilty of idolatry, worshiping other gods. They were guilty of sexual immorality. They were guilty of not trusting God, but testing Him. They were guilty of grumbling and complaining. And this disobedience led to their punishment. Because of their failure to obey God's word and trust His plan, they brought God's judgment on themselves. And what we need to understand is that God's discipline is for correction, not punishment. We could very easily see God as as manipulative and coercive and, and He just enjoys punishing His people, but that's not the case. God brings about His discipline for correction. In verse 11, we go on and we kind of see this. Now these things happen to them as an example, the text tells us. These things happened as an example. I'm getting impatient with the clicker, and so it went too far now. (laughs) I don't know if I'll be able to go back, but 
1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says, now these things happen to them as an example. And so God brought these punishments on them to teach them. This was a part of his covenant. And he was teaching them so they would turn away from their sin and they would walk in his ways. Now in Leviticus chapter 26, God is is reminding his people of his covenant and he's saying, just remember that when I bring you into the land, if you obey me, I'm going to bring rain at the right time. Your crops are going to flourish. Your animals are going to thrive. You yourselves are going to thrive. I'm going to give you peace and security and your enemies are not going to be able to fight against you. But if you disobey me, and this is so interesting because you would almost think that it would be like, if you disobey me, then boom, I'm going to cut it off. But that's not what God says. He says, if you disobey me, I will punish you. And if you refuse to listen to me, then the punishment is going to get slightly worse. And if you refuse to listen to me, then the punishment is going to get a little bit worse, and so on, and so on, and so on. And God shows His grace and His mercy that in their punishment, He could just immediately cut them off from His grace. And that's not what He does. Because His discipline is aimed at correction, not punishment. We think of this when we're parenting. This is supposed to be the purpose of our discipline with our children, right? Now, for those of you who have children, young children especially, you, you know how difficult it can be to, to discipline children out of correction rather than trying to punish them. When we allow our frustrations and emotions to crawl, control us, we end up disciplining as a sort of way to get revenge on our kids. It's like, you did this, and so now you get this. Ha! Take that. It's like we're kind of getting back at the kids. It's like, I'll show you. But in our better moments as parents, we realize that discipline is aimed at redemption. It's aimed at restoration. We're reminding them of God's grace in our discipline. That even though you've sinned, I still love you the same way God loves us even when we sin. But we have to correct you. We have to discipline you to bring you back to the path of righteousness. And that is exactly what God's intending for his people. He wants them to experience the best life has to offer. He wants us to experience the best life has to offer. And so he guides us with his words. And every once in a while he disciplines us because he loves us. And he wants us to come back to his ways. When we trust God and his word and live in obedience, then we will experience his blessing. The last benefit of obedience that we're going to see this morning is that obedience leads to victory. Obedience leads to victory. The Israelites were wrong in assuming that God didn't want what was best for them. And that's exactly what they were doing. At every turn, they questioned God. They questioned his motives. They questioned where he was leading them, where he was guiding them. And they were distrusting him. They didn't believe that God wanted what was best for them. But God does want what's best for us. He desires to lead us, to bless us, and to give us victory if we will trust him in his ways. As we go back to verse 11, we'll read through kind of the whole verse. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So on the one hand, God wanted to use them as an example to his people, but now he's written them down for our instruction. Many of you have heard that saying 
A good man will learn from his own mistakes, but a great man will learn from the mistakes of others. As guys, I think maybe guys, guys are more stubborn in this way. We tend to be more stubborn in this way sometimes where it's like, I need to learn it for myself. You know, someone can warn you, but you're like, ah, I think I can, I think I can do it. I think I can pull it off. We tend to be, <laughs> I joked to, to one of our guys' Bible studies, it's like, you basically, if you want a guy to do something, basically tell him he can't do it. And then the wheels will start turning. You'll be like, I'm pretty sure I could do that. You know, we, we've thought of ridiculous things where we're like, it, it's impossible, and yet there's a part of our brain that goes, but I still want to try it because maybe, maybe I'm the outlier. Maybe I'm the one that actually could do it, right? But what we need to learn is that we can learn from other people's mistakes and save ourselves a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of struggle. Let's learn from the Israelites. That's why God has recorded this for us. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, we're closer to the end than the beginning. You guys, the end of the ages has come on you. The, clo- the end is closer than the beginning. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about sports. And it, and it doesn't really matter what sport you pick. I, mean, I could pick hockey because the playoffs are going on right now. And we've been watching a lot of hockey as a family. But in the beginning of the season, the first few games of the season, every play, every possession of the puck, uh, every mistake, it, it, it doesn't really seem all that serious. Because you're at the beginning of the season, you've got lots of time to make up for it. But as you get closer to the playoffs, and now you're in the playoffs, and you're getting closer to the end of the game, and now those little mistakes are glaring issues. There's maybe a blown call, and and now we take so much more seriously every single aspect of the game. You have to be sharp. You have to be laser-focused so you don't make any mistakes that could lead to the team losing, right? And when you get to the dying seconds of the game, and, and you're drawing up a play, you know, maybe for the first half of the game, you're kind of... I know that teams have strategies and they have plays that they set, but a lot, of, a lot of sports is relying on instinct. And so you're allowing your players to do what they do best. But as you get closer to the end of the game, you're a lot more methodical. And you say, we are going to run this play and we're going to try to get this scenario and this situation to give our team the best chance to win. And that's exactly what we should be doing with our lives. We're closer to the end than the beginning. We're closer to the return of Christ. We're closer to God's wrath and judgment being poured out on the earth. We're closer to spending eternity in God's presence. And now that we have the example of the Israelites of what not to do, how we can walk in obedience to God's word, how much more intentionally should we pursue God and obey his word? And Paul goes on to say, Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We can't be complacent like the Israelites. We can't rely on our heritage. We can't rely on a prayer that we said years ago. We need to evaluate our lives. Am I actually in Christ? Have I truly trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Have I given my life to the one who gave his life for me? Or am I relying on something else? my works, or something else to get me by. Now with a verse like this, we need to be careful not to think that God is playing mind games with us. We tend to think of a verse like this, and it's like, how can you ever be sure of your salvation? How can we ever be sure that God is pleased with us? And so a verse like this can lead us to despair. Every single time we sin, we're wondering, am I truly a Christian? A Christian wouldn't sin, right? 
And so we have to be careful. This is not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to be questioning our salvation every day. But he issues these warnings for us to be careful, to beware, that we're not going on and we're complacent in our lives. He wants his children to be victorious, which leads us to verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, we all struggle. We all struggle with sin. And though none of our situations are the same exactly, there's a commonality in what we go through that's universal. I think back to in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, John talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I, I think every sin could be categorized in one of those three categories. And so we all struggle in those same general ways. And that's not to make light of your situation. Your situation is unique. But at the same time, we need to realize that everything that we face is similar. There's no sin that you struggle with that's not common to others. You're not unique in that sense, and that should, that should give you comfort. There's nothing new in this world that wasn't present 3,000 years ago that God can't handle. He knows it all. Notice, though, that this passage does not say you will not be tempted. We are going to be tempted. But God will provide the way out. This tells us that the temptation has a purpose. It's not meant to derail us. It's actually meant to propel us forward. It's meant to lead us victoriously in Christ. I was watching some videos yesterday because this came to my mind, this toddler challenge. Maybe you guys have heard of this toddler challenge where parents will sit their kids down at a table, usually toddlers, you know, two, three years old, and they put a bowl of candy in front of the, the child and they set up a camera and then they say, you're not allowed to eat any of the candy until I come back. And then they walk away, they go downstairs, and the whole, the whole time the camera's running. And you just watch these children sitting at the table, kind of like leaning over, looking into the jar of candy, smelling the candy. Oh, that looks so good. I want to eat the candy so bad. And what the parents are trying to do is they're just, they really don't have much of an agenda other than to see what their kids are going to do. They're just trying to understand, and, and it's hilarious to see them as they they wrestle with, do I obey my parents or do I eat the candy? Because ah, I want to do both, but I really want to eat the candy. And so it's funny to watch this. But if we're not careful, we can think that, that God is kind of like this. Like he's just bored and he's sitting around and he doesn't have anything better to do. He's like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to throw a temptation this guy's way and see what happens, you know? And then he laughs. Like that's not what God's doing. He's not arbitrary like parents sitting their kids down in front of a bowl. God is intentional. He knows what he's doing. Notice that every temptation that comes to you has to be filtered through God. And he has to determine with, can, he, can, can this person handle this intensity of this temptation? Or do I have to somehow ease it a little bit because I know what they can handle? And that should give us such comfort, shouldn't it? I think back to the book of Job. And as Satan is coming, he's kind of complaining to God. And, and God's like, man, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan's like, yeah. He's like, You've put this hedge of protection around him. And I'm just thinking, that's incredible. Think about that for a second. That God has a hedge of protection around you and Satan is probably complaining to God about that. It's like, I would love to get at them a little bit more than I can right now. And yet God is protecting you. 
God is watching over you. And He's not going to let anything come into your life that you can't handle. What comfort that we should have in this wonderful truth. We need to understand that God brings testing to cause us to trust Him more. That we might trust Him more. Job, again, is a case in point. And we struggle to believe this in our lives. We tend to see temptation as a negative thing. But we can be sure that whatever temptation God is bringing into our life, He is using to lead us to victory. He's using to give us assurance, to give us blessing, to lead us along His path. So as we close this morning, I want you to think about the sin in your life. We've seen from the Israelites that sin can sure cause a lot of problems. Sin brings God's punishment. And God was faithful. He was faithful to discipline them. I know that's contrary to the way we think. We wouldn't think that God is faithful, but he was. He made a covenant with them. This is a covenant relationship. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. And they agreed to the covenant. And this is so important for us because guess what? If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in a covenant with God. You are agreeing to the terms of that covenant. And so we need to know how God dealt with the people in his previous covenant if we want to know how we're going to deal with God in the new covenant. And so as we're in that relationship, I want you to ask yourself, do you struggle with doubt? Do you struggle with our points this morning? Do you struggle to have assurance? Do you feel like God is not blessing you? Do you feel like you're not having victory in your life? Maybe you have sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. And the fact that God would discipline us should not discourage us, but it should give us wonderful hope because God disciplines those he loves. Discipline keeps us on track. It brings us back to his word. And so this week, I want you to think about setting aside some time to ask God, to pray over what sin in my life are you asking me to deal with? Are you asking me, what sin have I become complacent about? And maybe you already know what that sin is. Maybe you've been allowing this sin to control you, and it's festering in your soul. We need to be in God's word daily. We need to be following his word, his spirit, rather than doing what's right in our own eyes. The Israelites tried that, and they failed, right? And if we're honest, we've tried that and we've failed. As we're in God's word, each and every day, he reveals sin to us. So that, as the last section on your papers, we're in God's word, he reveals sin in our lives so that we can confront them, confess them, and conquer them. Paul had to discipline his body to be under control, and so do we. And as we confront sin, as we strive for obedience and walking in God's word, he will give us assurance, he will give us blessing, and he will give us victory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wonderful promise.